0: Well, this morning, as we continue our rhyme or reason series, we're looking at a poem called Ozymandias, which is about a pharaoh. It was written by Percy Shelley, and it described a pharaoh that most believe to be Ramses the Second, which other people believe was the same pharaoh that God delivered Israel from, and a piece of poetry about his legacy. He was really addicted to making statues of himself. He was an incredible military commander, had an incredible legacy but as you saw from some of the images behind you in that last song, when he ruled the world, he was the king of kings, and he considered himself all-powerful. And this piece of poetry is really a critique of him while describing what he was after and what he ultimately found. And I think it speaks to the human heart's condition that all of us have something that we think that will ultimately satisfy us, like Ozymandias. Ozymandias. We've all got a different flavor. For some of us, it's other people's approval. For some of us, it's a certain salary, a certain title, or a certain whatever it is. But that we think if we could just make that level, just get that career, just get that spouse, just have that many kids, just have kids who are obedient, just have kids who who, who launch well, we'd be satisfied. Yet this piece of poetry really speaks to the idea that the human heart really has a problem like Ozymandias did. We can't answer the question... How much is enough, and what will I do with the rest? There's this lack of contentment in the human heart that we try and satisfy eternal whole with temporal things. In fact, here's the the opening line of the poem describes Ozymandias' legacy. After all the historical things he did, after all the mighty battles he fought, all that's left... Of his mighty legacy. Are two vast and trunkless legs of stone. Stand in the desert. And near them on the sand. Half sunk. A shattered visage lays. That's a face. And that face lies there. In the sand. A remnant of his days gone by. Whose frown and wrinkled lip. And sneer of cold command. That even the images he made of himself. He wasn't happy. He was frowning. No joy, no happiness. How is it possible that someone who had so much power and so much wealth and so much command of the world could be so unsatisfied? It's interesting, Harvard did a research project on why wealth and material doesn't ultimately make you happy. They said one of the reasons is because human beings are always evaluating success based on two criteria. Number one, they ask themselves, am I doing better than I was before? Great question. Number two, am I doing better than other people? And because people aren't necessarily open about the condition of their marriage, you know, we all look good in front of each other or, or the condition of their family, it's hard to really know if you're doing better than other people because you don't really know other people. So money becomes this arbitrary way in which you can determine if you're doing well. Am I doing better than I was before? Yes, I have more in my savings account, I have more in my, my bottom line, I have more in my salary. Therefore, I guess I'm doing well. The problem is every time you do that, the next year, the next month, the next decade, it's an ever-chasing carrot in front of you. The other problem Harvard found is that you're always comparing yourself to other people. Am I doing better than others? Well, every time you upgrade to a new neighborhood, you're with different others. And so you're constantly having to one-up yourself to feel happiness or satisfaction because as you move or get a second home, you're on other people who vacation at a new level who spend at a new level. And that insatiable appetite creates, even with all the wealth that Ozymandias had, a sense of dissatisfaction. These desires become intense desires, insatiable desires. So this morning I want to give you five implications to intense desires with hope that you and I can find contentment and figure out why we're having trouble finding contentment in our current framework. Our first implication is this. Never, it, there's never enough just never enough to satisfy an intense craving whatever your craving is whether it's for approval you're never going to get everybody to like you whether it's for a title there's always a bigger title there's always a bigger territory there's always some sense which there's more out there and, and notice let's go back back to the poem again look what he says in the poem what he's after in the poem Ozymandias I met a traveler from an antique land who said so there's a traveler And then he begins to speak. Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. Tell that its sculptor, well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. So he's showing that the words of the sculptor, the artist, are going to stand longer than his legacy. And here's what it says that the sculptor wrote on the bottom of the statue. Next slide. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed them. And on the pedestal whose words appear, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works. And look how the writer capitalized works. Because for Ozymandias, he would be known for his works and his statues and his cities and his legacies. He thought his capital W works would stand. They're mighty and make everyone else despair. And yet... It didn't last. Nothing besides remains. A face and a couple legs. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretch away. That even somebody with this much power, his insatiable desire for legacy didn't last. And ultimately, no matter how much you and I do, no matter what legacies we leave, no matter what, what foundations we set up, in about two generations, three generations, somebody will say, You had a great-grandpa who did what? Your great-grandma was who? Oh, we're going to be forgotten. So building our our sense of worth on our works, it's insatiable. That's why when God is leading the Israelites out of Israel, in the book of Numbers, they start complaining. I mean, they've been complaining about about bondage for 400 years, which makes sense, they've been in slavery. But now in, in the book of Numbers, it says, they begin to complain about the lack of food. Well, they're actually getting food. Next slide. Um, but they actually don't have any meat. Oh, I forgot about that slide. Yeah, so here's what's interesting about uh, about um, Ozymandias. So he builds all these statues to himself, and they just dug one up in 2017, and this actually is one of his statues, Ozymandias, that's found in a Cairo slum. I mean, can you imagine if Ozymandias, who built this huge empire, realized that his face, I mean, look at the craftsmanship on that, would end up in a big pile in a Cairo slum. But everything temporal ultimately falls apart. Which again, that's why when God's leading the people out of Israel, he writes in the book of Numbers these words. He says, he gave them over because they had yielded to an intense craving. Oh, we've got to have meat. Bread's not enough. Freedom's not enough. We've got to have bread. If we just had some meat, that would make us happy. Give us, who's going to give us meat? Meat, meat, meat. They're doing the meat chant. And we're going to find that no amount of meat, no amount of popularity, no amount of influence, no amount of title satisfies the human heart. There's just never enough. I saw an interview with Will Smith several years ago, and I thought it was really powerful. Here's what he says. I've been at the top of money. I've had all the sex I've ever wanted. I've had all the adoration. I've been to the top of all those material world mountains, and nothing makes you happy other than being useful to others. That's it. That's the only thing that will ever satisfy is that thing is that you're doing something useful. Now, do you see what he did? He just took money, sex, and material and swapped it with something new, usefulness. Usefulness is also temporal. Don't build your identity being useful. Because sometime your health's going to go and you can't be useful anymore. My grandfather suffered from deep depression. He was a Marine. He was incredibly useful. But when he got diabetes and when he couldn't move around anymore, he didn't think he had a purpose in life anymore. See, whether it's being useful or the material things, what Will Smith says is, I, I've been there. I've tried it all. I'm telling you, it di- I had all of it, plus some. It just doesn't satisfy. That's what these intense cravings do. And that's why God says he's created an eternal solution to an eternal problem in your heart, which is only eternity can fill eternity. The second thing about intense cravings is that they distort not only the present, but the past. Intense cravings for something will distort how you see your current reality and how you see the past. All of a sudden, the people who are hungry for this meat, 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 meat. We remember the fish that we ate freely in Egypt. Oh, it's the good old days. The good old days in Egypt when we were slaves. Ah. When we ate freely fish. All the meat we ever wanted. See, they've already distorted the past. Now, they were in the past. They're like, get me out of here. But now these intense cravings for something distorts the past. Oh, Egypt, we had cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic. Oh, it was like a, it was like a smorgasbord. But now all we get is bread and freedom and facing the unknown and wandering around the desert. They don't see that their complaining it stays with them wherever they go. When they're in Egypt, they complain. When they're free, they complain. When they have bread, they complain. When they have meat, They complain. Their insatiable appetite distorts everything. Dr. Gottman is a marriage researcher. He said, one of the things that happens when you begin to have contempt for your spouse, and that contempt comes because your insatiable desire to change them or your insatiable desire to, to, to make something that's not your spouse's priority a priority, when it moves to contempt in your relationship, One of the problems they researched and found is that it begins to not only destroy your current marriage and future, but actually works backwards and destroys your past. People who begin to have contempt for one another in marriage, they don't even remember the good times in the past. Instead of remembering, oh, our wedding day was such a great day, they remember, yeah, I remember you spilled something on me. Oh, and I remember that uh, your dad was flirting with so-and-so. And all of a sudden, it begins to destroy everything about the present and the past. Because that's what intense cravings do. They take in even the good things and begin to distort it. Thirdly, intense cravings, they tear down more than they build up. Build up. There's no doubt that intense cravings for good things have a lot of positives. I was looking at some of my intense cravings. Some of my intense cravings to make people happy. It's a great craving of mine. And part of that is a desire to see people happy and to see people fulfilled. But sometimes, and always checking, how you doing? How you doing? How you doing? How you doing? You are doing okay? You doing okay? You doing okay? ends up annoying people to death, and I end up causing the very problem that I'm trying to solve or trying to alleviate, which is in checking all the time, I actually have such an intense craving that sometimes my identity or my happiness is based on the happiness of the people around me, which I can't control. The fear of the future, as I've thought about long-term planning related to my son and my obsession with trying to control the future or at least certainly trying to plan for the unplannable. I'm meeting with a counselor tomorrow to talk a little bit about the hypervigilance way that much my brain is stuck in fight and flight. But I talked to a counselor a few months ago, and he said, Chad, d- doesn't it seem kind of ridiculous that you're trying to plan for things that are going to happen in 50 years? No. <laughs> it, do- it doesn't. Remind me of a friend of mine whose uh, dad had PTSD from Vietnam, and every night he ran around the house with a gun and checked and made sure everything was okay. He said, Dad, do you think that might be a little over the top? No, it just was normal to him. And part of how I've hyper vigilantly planned in order to protect my other kids from maybe having the burden of, of, of uh, you know, Quinn's long term care fall on them has really created a way in which what's responsible and true and good and caring has actually torn down and torn me apart inside while pursuing something I thought was good but became insatiable trying to control the future. Well, here's what happens in the passage these cravings end up tearing down far more than they build up. They want meat, and the people are weeping. Oh, we want meat! We need meat! We need it! Throughout their whole families, everybody's at the door of their tent, everybody. And God's not particularly pleased at this. And Moses, the leader, is not really pleased at this. So Moses now is trying to figure, how am I going to take care of feeding a million people with meat? And now we can see Moses' intense craving. He thinks it's all up to him. So while they're obsessed with meat, his intense craving is, I'm the leader, I need to provide everyone else's needs, and we're going to see that need is going to tear him apart. Responsible, leadership, good things. But he so thinks it's up to him, you're going to see how it tears him apart more than fills him up. Moses turns to God and says, Why have you afflicted me? Go back when I went done. Why have you afflicted your servant, and why have I not found favor in your sight? God must be mad at me that i got these kind of people complaining around me. That you have laid the burden of all these people on me. See the burden of thinking that it's your job to provide for everybody else around you? Now you can go to the next slide. He continues and says, did I conceive all these people, God? Did I beget them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a guardian carries a nursing child to the land which you swore to your fathers? Where am I going to get meat to give all these people? They weep all over me. Give us meat that we may eat. And God hasn't told him to do any of this. But this lie, this intense craving he has to be a good leader, to be a good provider, to take care of other people, to have happy followers, has created such a burden. He thinks it's come from God. He's getting angry at God. This intense craving to make people happy leads him to suicide. Look out in the yellow here. I am not able to bear all these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, please kill me here and now. The intense craving to be a responsible, good-providing leader and be in control of things beyond his control has led him to suicidal thoughts. Because intense cravings tear down. They take away far more than they fill up. And you might have a great ambitious plan that's gotten you a lot of, a lot of great success in career, but it's torn down the relationships and the things you said were important. And your marriage isn't, is, is Ozymandias status. Two trunkless legs and a visage face of frowning because of how you pursued something else. Or you put so much pressure on your marriage to be your source of, of, of ultimate value that your marriage is crumbling over the weight that it just can't live up to your expectations. And it's tearing down the very thing that you care about. Well, what are the messages you tell yourself? Moses got a lot of things he's telling himself that God never told him. About approval, about titles, About territory. I know last year, maybe two years ago now, if you saw the movie with Tom Cruise called American Made, it was an unbelievable true story of a uh, guy who worked for TWA as a pilot, and he kind of got bored with his job and decided that maybe he could make more money uh, arming a cartel in Colombia. and some people think he worked for the CIA, the movie certainly implies that, there's a little bit of rumor on that, but he definitely worked for the DEA, so he was running drugs back and forth for the cartel, and while he was doing that, some think the CIA, he was helping arm those to come against the... Uh, The uh, warlords over there. So he's got this incredible deal going back and forth and all facts show that every trip he took back and forth to drop off the drugs in Louisiana and go back and forth was making one and a half million dollars every plane flight. In the movie, it shows he makes so much money that he can't keep in a bank that he stuffed every cupboard, every area, every shed in his house. He's actually dug and put bags of cash all over the yard. The dog keeps digging up their bags of cash. Wife comes in, hey, hey, we got cash blown over the backyard. I'll get it in a minute. Just money everywhere. By all estimates, he made over $60 million. And then the DIA caught him and ultimately had him turn on the cartel. And it's then the cartel came and found him for turning on him and killed him. Now, he had one of his partners, this guy named Joe. When Joe was 14, Joe was trained by Barry Seal to be one of his messengers. He didn't run drugs, but he ran sort of messengers between people. And he got caught up in the lifestyle. He said Barry Seal, played by by Tom Cruise, was just an amazing legend. Always unsatisfied. There was never enough money, never enough power, never enough adventure, never enough risk. But boy, was it fun to watch and be friends with him. He said when he was 15, 16, he actually, uh, Barry Seal bought him a a new Triumph motorcycle so he could sometimes do 48-hour motorcycle rides back and forth to deliver messages. He said he was just caught up in all of it. It was fantastic. It was just so enjoyable, so much fun. There was so much adventure. But sometime in his 20s, when Barry started really moving into the drug scene, at the same time he was being influenced by Barry, he was being influenced by a friend who was a follower of Jesus who began to talk about the Bible and talk about Jesus and talk about ultimate satisfaction could be found in spiritual matters. And Joe said he was in this really unique position because he had this guy who was a legend and a mentor, taught him to fly, actually, before he even had his license. But he also could feel this total dissatisfaction despite having all the trappings. And he had someone else in his life who was successful who seemed to have peace. So Joe made a decision to leave the team, to become a follower of Jesus, Still had a good relationship with Barry, but didn't be part of the business. And it was years later, when the cartel turned on him and he was killed, I think it was nineteen eighty six, that Joe, his fellow friend and mentoree, did the funeral for Barry Seal. He talked about how getting away from the insatiable appetite for more and more material as if it would ever satisfy is what changed his trajectory. He still uses his piloting skills as a missionary and travels into third world countries and helps with fresh water and things like that. And he said, I found a truly satisfying life. So he didn't speak ill will of Barry, but he definitely saw that all of that didn't bring the joy he thought it would. Well, next implication is that intense cravings cause burdens for the people. Let's go back to Moses for a second. Moses has got this burden that it's all up to him. And so God has to come down and talk to him. And give him some advice that a lot of things you're putting on yourself, the things you're thinking are going to satisfy you. If you can give everybody meat, they'd be happy. Those people are not going to be happy with meat. The Lord said to Moses, you need some help. Gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel. I'm going to take the spirit that's on you, all the burden, all the weight, all the anxiety that's on you, and I'm going to spread it out over those 70 people. And they will bear the burden of the people with you that you may not bear it yourself alone. Stop trying to be everybody's savior. Stop trying to be everybody's rescuer start building a team, start depending on me to use that team and not thinking I'm depending on you to do everything. And this burden that Moses had, this intense craving, he needed help. He needed to think differently about God, think differently about his role, think differently about what makes people happy and what would make him happy. And God gives him real practical advice on that. Let me go back to the poem for a second because the writer does something really interesting in this poem. He actually takes, remember Ozymandias said, My works, look upon my works, king of kings. And the works was capitalized. The writer in this piece of poem still capitalizes something, but he changes it. Look at the words he uses. Nothing besides these two trunkless legs are left, remains, round the decay of that colossal wreck. And he capitalizes wreck. Wreck because you thought you would be remembered forever but in your obsession with self you became a wreck and you're reminded for your wreckage more than your works. And he actually uses the word colossal wreck and most poetry writers think that he uses the word colossal for a reason not just because it was the biggest word he could think of because colossal many of you probably remember from history the Colossus of Rhodes was another giant statue from another culture. And the Colossus of Rhodes was a giant statue that as you came into town, you would take your boat under this fantastic statue of Colossus. And it was a reminder of all the empires and the dynasties that would last forever or what kind of a society could build that. This will be remembered forever, the Colossus. And as we know, the Colossus is also a wreck. No matter how big you build it, these are temporal things. And for a man like Ozymandias, or Rameses II, who is obsessed with statues, ask yourself this. How many statues would be enough? Or maybe this. How tall a statue would finally satisfy? That one in Cairo was only 8 meters. Well, no wonder that didn't satisfy. Let's try 20 feet. Well... Maybe 50 feet. How many and how much is enough? And I want to propose to you, how many people need to be happy with you for you to be happy with yourself? How much money needs to be in that savings account for you to feel secure? Because I promise, if you're a saver, the minute you get to that number, you're going to say, "Be even better if we got more. Right? Because there is no... Now, some numbers are better than others, right? There's no doubt that some numbers are better than others. But there is no number that will satisfy. And if you think there is, go get that number. Work it hard. Work it hard. Get that number. Because you're going to see in a second, God says, go try it. Pick whatever you think is going to satisfy, whatever the number is, I promise you. See, before you get to that number, you can delude yourself. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just get to the number. Once you get to the number, it'll last for about a week. Maybe you'll even get a year. And then you're going to find out how deep... Your soul is your number of friends, your number of sales. Your heart is too deep to be satisfied, and if you think you can, you're just going to keep moving that number up, and you're going to end up becoming like Ozymandias, did a colossal wreck, and you're going to wrecking the very things you care about most around you. Here's how God answers it. He says, "Those intense crazings, you end up mostly empty, even when they're fulfilled." You're going to think when you get fulfilled, it's going to fill you up and take care of it all, but it won't. You're actually going to end up instead still longing for more. Therefore, the Lord is going to give you meat. God comes down. Come on, you've been asking for meat. It's meat time. I'm going to give you some meat to eat. There's a big wind that's going to come in from the Mediterranean and push this gigantic, I call it quail hail. Quail is going to come hailing down because of this breeze that pushes in the quail from the Mediterranean. And he says, now this meat's going to come in. And I don't want you just to eat it for a day. No, no, no. Let's make sure we find out if this meat will satisfy. Eat for a day. Don't just eat it for two days. Don't just eat meat for five days. Nor ten days. Not even twenty days. No, no. Let's make sure meat's going to satisfy. But for a whole month you're going to eat meat. Until it comes out your nostrils. This is God saying, you pick it. You think it's quail? You think it's meat? You eat it. For a day, two days, ten days, twenty days. You have all the meat, all the sex, all the titles, all the power, all the security you want for thirty days. And I'm telling you, it'll come out your nostrils and you still won't be satisfied. In fact, it will become loathsome to you. That shiny thing that was once going to be the solution is going to be loathsome. Because you have wept before him saying, why did we ever come out of Egypt? Because that insatiable, intense desire in you is not satisfied by whatever it is you think you're going to plug in. most modern example of this would be Oscar Wilde. If you've ever read any of his poetry or seen his life, he was a complete hedonist and he gave his life over to pleasure in any and every form. He made his life's mission to find any degree of which he could comfort himself, pleasure himself, and make himself the focal point of his life and his celebrity. And yet it's in the end of his life, he was laying back next to his lover. And he turned to him and said, of all the lovers we've had in our life, of all the lovers you've had in your life, have you ever loved any of them for their own sake? Not just to get you pleasure, not because it makes you feel good about yourself. Have you ever ever loved one of them for their own sake? His partner turned to him and said, No, I don't believe I have. And Oscar Wilde said, neither have I. Shortly after that, he called for a minister to come to the house. And he began to talk to the minister about Jesus, of all things. And he wrote this incredibly long poem. I read it again this morning. It's like, I don't know, 12 pages. And it's called The Ballad of Reading Goal. And here in the Ballad of Red and Gold, Oscar Wilde describes his journey to try and find meaning anywhere and everywhere, and how ultimately he was only satisfied by Jesus, and Jesus' ability to wash him of everything he had done, and to cleanse his heart from how he'd contaminate it with selfishness, by filling it and making his life about his own pleasure. Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde found what the Bible said to be true. Even when you're fulfilled, you're mostly empty. So how much is enough and what do we do with the rest? And what does it look like to ask God to save you from your cravings? You see, you can't save yourself from your cravings because you can't think straight enough because you really are still believing that thing is going to satisfy you. you got to crave something better. And God is that eternal thing that can fill that eternal hole in your life. And whether you're new to faith and and, and you're still not sure about Jesus, God, and the Bible, this is something to wrestle with. God, save me from these cravings, my anger, my lust, my my lust for power, my lust for pleasure. But I need to crave something better, something deeper. That's who God wants you to be. And if you've been a long-term follower of Christ... You say, well, I did that. No, no, I'm talking about do you daily in your life, regardless of whether you're getting to heaven or not, do you crave God as your source of identity or have you substituted it for one of the many things we've talked about today? Because those cravings as a Christian, those cravings not being a Christian, ultimately still will not satisfy. And you'll end up like Ozymandias. Think about how many people in your life have end up with ruins in their life, right? Let's go back to that picture again. How many of us in the pursuit of one thing have seen the rubble of other things? We made the title, but man, we haven't had the ability to rest in about two decades. We had to give up our our hobbies. We had to give up our free time. What is it for you that in the pursuit of something has put something else valuable in shambles? It's one of the things I've been wrestling with. As I mentioned earlier, just this idea of trying to control the future, as, as ridiculous as that is, or at least trying to plan for the future with a whole lot of what I didn't realize was control built into it, has caused a lot of things to fall apart in my soul. And a so part of what I'm doing is doing the same thing I'm asking you to do. It's just, God, save me from my cravings, even my good ones. Save me from thinking I can put myself in the place of God. God, help me to rebuild the rubble in my life. Help me to build up the things that I love that I've destroyed because I've pursued good things and made them into ultimate things. What's powerful about poetry is it gives voice to these feelings in our life. But that's also true of biblical poetry. So in this series, we've been looking at pieces of poetry from the culture, but also pieces of poetry from the Bible. We're going to do a reading today from the book of Ecclesiastes, where a man named Solomon tried every type of intense desire to find satisfaction. And in his pursuit, he found that only eternity can fill eternity. Let's pray. Father, I just confess how broken my heart is, God, that I think security or a strategic plan or a 20-year plan or a 30-year plan or people's happiness could somehow fill the hole in my life. And Father, for each person here, I ask that you would nudge them, speak to them through their conscience, use one of the words we just talked about, to call them to freedom. God, you wanted Egypt, uh, the people of Israel, to be out of Egypt, but even when they were out of Egypt, they still had a lot of bondage in them, to fear, to panic, to complaining, to not being grateful. So Father, we ask that you would make us a free people, not just on the outside, but free people on the inside as you do that, Father, that we would ask you to save us. We call upon you to save us, even from our own cravings. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. The burdensome task that God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. I communed with my heart, saying, look, I have attained greatness and gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this, too, is grasping for the wind. To everything, there is a season. A time for every purpose under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that whatever God does shall be forever.
0: Well, maybe you want to do that as we conclude. You want to call on some angels. So if you just want to pray real quick with me, just in your own hearts, you can say to God, God, I'm calling on angels. The word angel means messenger. God, I need a messenger from you to save me from my cravings, to bring peace to my heart. Father, I need forgiveness. I want contentment. I want hope. And I want to find a place my soul can rest. Jesus, we ask you to begin to answer and nudge people in the direction as they call upon you and call upon your angels. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Again, thanks for joining us for our poetry series. It will continue again next week with our third poem in the series. So thanks for being here. We'll see you all next week.